So it is Ephesians 3, 14 through 31, which is on page 1158, if you're interested. So this is a prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. I don't know... Uh... I don't know about you, but I think for some people, by the time Christmas comes and you get through Christmas, uh, many of us are kind of done with Christmas. Uh, the season is so, well, I mean, it's a marathon, right? The amount of uh, activity that is involved in the Christmas season. By now, I'm sure your tree is a massive fire hazard and probably needs to be thrown out. There are probably needles, pine needles all over your floor. You're probably tired of sweeping up broken glass from ornaments that the dog knocked off the tree. Uh, you probably have about 750 boxes from Amazon that are taking up your porch or your basement, and you've got about 30 pounds more that you have on your body than you did at the beginning of December. So many of us are just done uh, with Christmas, um, but I, I want to say to you not so fast, if, if you will indulge me for a moment, if I might be so bold, if I might have the audacity to do so, I'd like to revisit the Christmas story. Because actually, it, it is the Christmas season, right? I mean, traditionally, the season of Advent is the season which leads up to Christmas, the season in which we look forward to the coming of Christ, and we also use it as a way of looking forward to this time when He will return. But then Christmas Day comes, and, and now it's really a time to reflect upon the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of God coming to us in the person of Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, the decorations are still up, so we're going we're gonna to hit Christmas here one more time. Let me read for you. This is the passage in the story when an angel appears to Mary. All right, let me read to you. This is from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his Father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? Now, you've got to love her response, right? 
I love this response. Mary, who's probably no more than 14 years old, perhaps somewhere in that age range is what scholars sort of suggest she might have been. And this angel appears to her. Okay, just that. Think about that. Angel shows up, not a normal everyday occurrence. And this angel comes and says, you are going to give birth to this, this child who's, who's going to be the Messiah, the the." The king, the promised king that the prophets have longed for for hundreds of years, that your parents have been longing for, that you've been hearing about uh, the scriptures being read to you in the synagogue. You, you, this is, you've been hearing about this. This is the king who is going to, oh, oh, he's called the son of the most high. He will be given the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary gives this, I think, a response that any 14-year-old girl might give. Be like, wait a minute, I'm going to be pregnant? That's the, okay, I don't know all the son of the most high stuff. I'm going to be pregnant? And she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, it's interesting here because the NIV is, is helping you to understand what she says there. Because the actual word, what she actually says is this. She says, how can this be since I have not known a man? That's the the word. The gnosko is the Greek root word. She says, how how can this be since I have not known a man? No, no, she's obviously not saying she doesn't know any men. She's not saying she doesn't have awareness or knowledge of any men. I mean, she is engaged to Joseph. She's not saying she doesn't know any men. She says she doesn't know any man, if you know what I mean. You see, the NIV has to translate this as virgin because in English, we've lost our understanding of what the Jewish scriptures understood as the word to know. That to know something is not just about knowing something with your head knowledge of something in that sort of mental way. It's about a close, intimate experience. That's what knowledge is. To the Hebrew people, to know something, to really know it, is to know something in a personal way, in an experiential way. That's what this word know means. It's not just about sex, of course. It's it's a term that refers to intimacy and and closeness. And of course, in a a marital relationship, then that would include that. But it's, it's about this experience, a personal, close, intimate experience, whatever it is, that that's what knowledge is really all about. Today we're continuing in our series, our series called God is Here, that Christmas is the announcement that God is here. Christmas is the announcement that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has come. And he has entered into our world. He has come here for us. And as we turn to the book of Ephesians, which is the book from which uh, Rachel read, did a great job not knowing that's what she was going to read from. Great job, Rachel. Uh, When we come to the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul then unpacks for us, well, what does this mean that God has come and why has God come? That's what the book of Ephesians gets to. Why has God come? We make all this hoopla about a little baby in a manger, all this. Okay, but why does he come? And I think that in the book of Ephesians, of course, there are a number of ways in which the purpose and the mission of God can be expressed. 
But in the book of Ephesians, Paul really puts it this way. He articulates that God has come to bring reconciliation. God has come to reconcile all things to himself. God has come to bring reconciliation, to bring renewal and restoration to a world that is broken. He has come, he has entered into the mess of our world in order to bring healing and reconciliation. He has come, he has put boots on the ground, I like to say. We often talk about in military terms, you know, you can go to war and you can just fly with drones and drop bombs from thousands of feet up high, but, but when it gets really serious is when you put boots on the ground, right? Now, now there's a vulnerability involved. And there's an important sense in which God has done in the person of Jesus has put boots on the ground. He's entered in. He's become vulnerable. He's come in to really deal with the mess and to bring renewal and reconciliation and restoration. And, and then here's what Paul goes on to say in, in the letter to Ephesians. He says, God has come to bring renewal and restoration to all things, that he's come to do that through his birth, through his ministry, through his death, and through his resurrection, that through his death, he forgave us of our sin. He entered into, fully entered into the result of sin, which is death, and he came out victorious on the other side, showing that he has the power, really does have the power to bring renewal and reconcile all things together. But then Paul goes on and says, okay, but now, now how, how is this reconciliation going to be implemented in our world in the here and now? And the shocking thing, the surprising thing that he hints at is this, that God's renewal and reconciliation of all things is to be done through the church. Back just a few verses from the passage that Rachel read. This is chapter 3, verse 10. says this, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He's saying that the powers of darkness, the spiritual forces of evil that undergird all of the brokenness in our world, that, that they should look at the church and see that God has entered into this world. They look at the church and they see that God has come to bring renewal and reconciliation and restoration. And we discover actually in the chapter that immediately precedes chapter 3, chapter 2, Paul uses this kind of language. He talks about the church in this way. He says, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And in the verses that precede that, he uses all of this sort of temple language, and he's suggesting that the church, the people of God, become the temple, the very place where heaven and earth intersect, that they come together. They are the place where heaven and earth intersect so that our world can find renewal and restoration. And it is for this reason. That Paul prays. This is what we see at the beginning of the passage that Rachel read. Verse 14. For this reason. Now what's the reason? I've just given you the reason. For this reason. Paul's going to pray for the church. He's going to pray something for the church. 
But, but what's the reason for the prayer? And the prayer is, well, the church is to be the means through which renewal and reconciliation come. And we see this, actually, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, we see Paul saying the same thing. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, for this reason, uh, and then he just kind of stops and goes off on a tangent. Um, editors try to figure out how to exactly punctuate this. But he stops for a minute goes off on a little bit of a tangent, and then comes back in verse 14, says the same thing, for this reason. So he's going back to what he said in verse 1, and verse 1 comes right after. He's talked about the church being the temple, this place where heaven and earth intersect. And then in that next section, he talks about it being through the church that renewal and reconciliation are to come to this world. So Paul's about to pray for the church. And the reason he's praying for the church is so that they can be the means through which renewal and restoration come. So this is important to know. I think what I want to highlight here is that when he's praying for the church, he's not praying for them just for their own sake. It's not just for them. It's for a purpose that has been given to them. Uh, If you're a football fan, this is a great time of year. Lots of football going on. Uh, Vince Molson, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if the Holmbergs are here. Buckeyes fans, I'm sorry about what happened last night. Uh, anyway, a couple great football games happened yesterday, college football, and the, the uh, NFL games are heating up. This is a big week 17, lots, lots going on in the football world. And if you watch football, and you have a team that you love, my guess is that you've had this experience, where you're watching a game, and one of your star players gets injured. And you see them lying there on the field, and, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I hope they're okay. Oh, man, I hope this is, it. oh. And, and you might even, you might even, you might even pray. Oh, God, please. <laughs> please let, let, them, let them be okay. And, and when, when you pray that, um, I mean, you, you, you care about them, but what you really mean is make sure they can get back into the game. Make sure they can finish their purpose. When somebody gets injured in a game and 80,000 people are all praying, they're praying that he's able to get back into the game, except for maybe his mom, right? His mom, I just hope he's okay. But all other 80,000 people, they're praying that he's okay so that he can get back into the game. There's a purpose. And in the same sense, when Paul prays for the church, it's for the purpose of them being able to be the means through which renewal and reconciliation could come into this world. So that's the reason that he prays. But what exactly is it that he prays? What does he pray would be true for them? And it's simply this. That they would know God. His prayer is that they would know God. Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Verse 19, and to know this love, and 
Many scholars agree that verse 19 really sums up this whole prayer that he gives there. And to know this love, he wants them to know the love of God. And that word know is the same word Mary uses when she says, I have not known a man. It's a knowledge that is close and personal and experiential. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would have that kind of knowledge of God. That this wouldn't just be head knowledge, that you know the right truths in your mind about God and the God of love, and you can articulate all of these tremendous truths, but that you would know them. Now, of course, knowing about, to, to be in a, in a relationship, you need to know about the person, right? If you're talking about a marital relationship, for example, it's not just about intimacy. It's not just about an experience. The more you know about that person, the, the, the better it's going to be, the whole thing is going to be. So certainly in the same sense, we need to know things about God. We need to study the scriptures and know them and know our doctrine and, and know our scriptures and all of that. But in the end, what it comes down to is do we know and experience God closely and in an intimate way? Psalm 34, 8 says this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Ever thought about that? Ever heard that verse before? Taste <laughs> and see that I mean that's weird. Taste it's like it's like a it's like a category transgression. If you're really right brained, you're like, taste God? No, no, no. That's that's uh, uh, that's like as Chris Rice would say, that's like trying to smell the color nine. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a category mistake. And then there's something it's trying to get at here, this kind of close, experiential knowledge of God taste, the presence of God. Brother Lawrence was a monk who lived in the 17th century. Actually, he didn't become a monk until he was 55 years old. Never too late to have a career change, never too late to become a monk. 55 years of age, he joined a monastery believe lived there for about 25 years or so, finished out his life in this monastery. And most of what he did while he was there was clean the kitchen. Much of his time was just spent cleaning the kitchen. And other monks, they came to notice this strange countenance about him. He had this peace and this joy about him when he was sweeping the floor. He had this joy, this peace about him when he was washing the dishes. He had this joy and this peace about him when he was cooking meals. It seemed like no matter what it was, no matter what the mundane task was, he had this joy that could not be disturbed. And of course, people sort of began to notice this. The monks began to notice this, and, and some of his writings have been collected into a book called Practicing the Presence of God, that he's one who just seemed to practice the presence of God. And I want to just give you this one quote. One of the things that, that is recorded of him having said, it's just weird, okay? Get ready. I have had such delicious thoughts of God that I am near ashamed to mention them. I mean, that's weird. <laughs> I, I, yeah, delicious 
Have you ever used that word? Have you ever experienced God? Ever like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you pour yourself a cup of coffee and you pull out your Bible and you sit down uh, to read and to study the scriptures and, and, and just, and then at the end you close it like, mm, delicious. Have you ever been a part of a community group or a Bible study where you get together and you study the scriptures together and you talk and you pray and you come home and, and, and your spouse is like, how was, how was Bible studies? Oh, it was delicious. Have you ever come home from a church service? Oh, man, God is delicious. But you see, that's what Paul's praying for us. That we would come to have this deep experiential knowledge of God. Paul's praying this because he knows that Knowing God is what Christianity is all about. Paul doesn't just pray this for the church. He prays it for himself. We find this in, in, in the book of Philippians. Paul knows that this is the heart of the Christian faith. And so this is what he longs for more than anything. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Listen to what it says here. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, what is he saying in here? So, he says here in verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God. When he says we are the circumcision, that's a way of saying we are the people of God. That what marks out the people of God is not circumcision. You might be circumcised, you might not. What, what marks you out, and of course, in his context, that was what was seen as being the mark of a member of the people of God. What he's saying is that's not what marks you out. What marks you out is that you worship in the Spirit. We worship in the Spirit. And he's saying it's that, it's that knowing God, that's what marks us out as believers. What he's saying is, is that all of the good things that we do don't, in and of themselves, mark us out as believers. The religious things that we do do not mark us out as those who have really come to know God. In his context, what it meant to be a religious person, he lived in the context of first century Judaism. He gives exactly what this looks like, verses 4 through 5, right? The circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, blah, 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 blah. He's got all of these different religious qualities about him that some might think would mark him out as a member of the people of God. But the point is, is that religion is not what marks you out. You see, this same kind of sentiment can emerge in our own lives. Well, I'm a member of the people of God. I serve in the children's ministry. I'm a member of the people of God. I, I serve coffee. I help with coffee hour. I, I'm a member of the people of God. I'm a trustee. I'm an elder. I'm on the executive board. I'm a pastor. Look, look at all the things that, that I do. Clearly, I am marked out as a member of God's people. And 
Listen to what Paul says about that. Verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The word know there, it's the same word that Mary uses. A close, intimate knowledge of God. I consider all other things rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, friends, I think society can tell the difference. They can tell the difference between people who just do good things and something different. I mean, our society has plenty of people who do good things. Lots of people who do good things that, that may or may not be a part of the church. You see, just doing good things is not what's going to necessarily mark us out. Now, there's something different when somebody is in a close relationship with God. You see, it colors all of the things that they do. It colors all of their good things. No doubt, when you come to know God, the more you come to know God, you will do good things. You will become religious. But the way in which you do all of these good things, there will be a color to it, a shape to it that is different. So the question for us today is, do we know God? Do you know God in this close, personal, experiential way? Do you know the width, the length, the height, the depth of God's love, as Paul articulates in this passage in Ephesians? Do you know the width, the length, the height, the depth of God's love? He uses these dimensions, no doubt, as a rhetorical device simply highlighting the limitless nature of God's love. But we can also see in these dimensions aspects of that love. Do you know the width of God's love? Do you know the width of God's love? Do, do you know that, that no matter how far you stray from God, He will always welcome. I mean, do, do you know that? I mean, you know that. But do you know that? Have you come to experience that? John Wesley. John Wesley writes about a time when he was a pastor. He was a pastor. He writes this. He writes about this moment in his life after having served in ministry for years. He writes about this moment in life when he says this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. You see, you can know God died for everybody's sins, for the sins of the world. But do you know that he died for yours? Have you come to experience the width of God's love? Have you come to experience the length of God's love? There's no end to this love. It will not end. Your life, that relationship with God, it will never end. All other relationships, 
and come to an end, but this is a relationship that ever ends. Do you know the length of God's love? Do you know the height of God's love? That nothing can separate us from God. There is no event that could come in the future in your life that could separate you from this love of God. And do you know the depth of God's love? The degree to which God was willing to go to bring reconciliation into this world and to reconcile himself to you. Do you know this? Do you experience this? Does it stick? Does the truth of the gospel stick to your soul? When I was in medical medical school, I was never in medical school. (laughs) When I was in middle school, I took a photography class. And that was back in the day when they had these things called photos. You ever seen these before? Like actually on paper. And, you know, you you would go into the development room. And the development process, if I'm remembering this correctly, there was this this paper uh, that the light would shine through the film, I guess, and then it would leave an imprint on the paper, right? It would shine through and imprint the paper with the picture. But the thing about it is that you can't just do that with any kind of paper, right? This paper was treated. You put these chemicals on it, and those chemicals would enable the, the light to shine through and to imprint that picture on the piece of paper, and then it would stick. If you just shine that film that light on any kind of piece of paper wouldn't stick. My question is this, are you treated or untreated paper? I think some of us, we hear the gospel, it it shines through, but it just, it doesn't stick. Paul is praying for the Spirit to make it stick. Now, maybe you're here right now and you're discouraged. Because maybe you're saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think I do know that. Or I haven't known it in a while. Maybe what I'm saying here reminds you of a time in your life, times in your life, you're like, yes, I did know God that way, but I don't seem to know Him that way now. Or maybe you've, you feel like I've never known I don't want you to be discouraged because what's clear is that the struggle for this is normal. And it's normal for those within the church. And we know this because Paul is praying this for the church. He's not praying to those outside the church. He's praying to the people in the community in Ephesus, those who are a part of the church. He's praying it for them. He prays it for himself. And so if, there, if you feel a dryness, if you feel that that's not what you're experiencing, don't, don't be discouraged. That struggle is part of the Christian life. I don't want to discourage you. I just want to remind you that this is what it's all about. Friends, as we come into 2020, it's our last Sunday before 2020. And my prayer is that 2020 will be a great year for our church. 
I pray that we will see fruit in a number of different ways. I pray that we will be a church that brings reconciliation into this world, that does a lot of great things in our community and around the world. But listen, it's only going to have any meaning if we have come to really know God. So my deepest prayer for 2020 for you, for me, and for our church is that we would come to know God in a deep and personal way. That we would come to taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for 2019. God, I know that for many, 2019 has been a wonderful year. For others, Lord, it has been a difficult year. For the rest of us, it's been a mix. Lord, I pray as we move into 2020, whatever comes our way, the ups and downs, the highs, the lows, God, we might be more and more steady as we have come to know you more. God, I pray as we look to 2020 and set goals, all the things that we would like to see happen in our lives, financial goals, personal goals, career goals. God, I pray that our number one goal would be to know you more. God, I pray that this year would be a year we wouldn't forget. We would look back at and see as a year when we were drawn to you, when life got simple, as we rested more and more in your love for us. God, we pray now for our time of response. God, I pray that maybe even in this moment our hearts might be returning to you, that that in this time of response we might confess to you our sin, we might turn to you once again. God, I pray that as we give of our tithes and our offerings, Lord, it would, it would stem out of a gratefulness for the experience that we have with you. And then, God, I pray that you would use these tithes, these offerings to help our church facilitate to this world the reality that there is a God who loves them and can be known. Pray this in Jesus' name.